Let me invite you to take your Bible tonight to John 19. John 19. Like I mentioned on Sunday, we're taking just a brief pause from our uh, regular exposition on tonight. We're going to look at the crucifixion of Christ. Now, Sunday, we looked at the uh, triumphal entry of Christ. That was our Sunday morning message, and uh, because this is what many call Passion Week or Holy Week. It is the week out of the year that leads up to Easter, which we know is Resurrection Sunday. And so the events that lead up to that, I think, is good for us to have a little reflection and reminder on. And uh, this, particular, this particular message and text that we'll look at, um, they, they just hit me fresh so often as I read them. As you think and meditate upon what Christ is going through, what he's enduring, what it's all leading up to, and ultimately the reason for all that you read uh, is really what really probes my heart. And so I pray that it will probe our heart tonight as we look at the Christ is crucified. John 19, and uh, we're going to read verse 1 down through verse 30. This is going to be a lengthier opening text, but we're not going to seek to exegete all of it. It's mainly just to be a... Be a um, refresher for us and tune our hearts into what took place. But notice in verse 1 of John 19, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and went out, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him, two others on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. 
So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from the top to the bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing all that all was now finished, said, To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is only really a portion of the crucifixion narrative as there's so much more that ties into this and we'll read a few other passages as we come through this this study. But do you remember how Jesus was received at the beginning of Passover week, what we looked at Sunday? How did Jerusalem react to Jesus coming into the city, riding on a donkey? They welcomed him as their king, as the one from God that he had promised. They shouted, Hosanna! the son of David, Hosanna in the highest. They looked to him as the one who would save them nationally and liberate them from Rome. They showed their honor of Jesus as their king with their procession, laying the palm branches and their own coats out in the way as he came over them. But then we find in our text, just a few days later, bear in mind, a few days, the triumphal entry of Jesus is no longer happening, but in fact, we find Jesus rejected dying on a cross. Now, between the time of Jesus' entry to Jerusalem at the beginning of the week until this moment, there's many other significant events that occur through the Gospels that you'll read about. Jesus entered the city, went into the temple, and he drove out the money changers. That's one event. He spent time with his uh, disciples, teaching them about uh, the coming destruction of Jerusalem and his nearing death. He gave them, throughout John, a great discourse of comfort and instruction, how the Holy Spirit would come and be with them. And though he's departing, he says, let not your heart be troubled. Judas Iscariot had uh, conspired to betray Jesus with the chief priests. Jesus and his disciples, they had the Passover. And what did he institute at the Passover? The Lord's Supper for the church, right? He spent time in agonizing prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane where he'd be betrayed. And now we find him before Pilate, the governor. And so what we find is that this week, this this week is truly an eventful week that leads up to the most important events in all of history, that being the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I want us to look at just an overview of this particular event and and, uh, look at these passages and maybe just bring our minds to be refreshed on the crucifixion of Christ. Notice with me, number one, in our notes tonight, we see the condemnation of Christ. The condemnation of Christ. Now, we know Scripture teaches that who is it that is actually condemned? It's us, right? 
It's us. We're the sinners. We're the ones who are judged guilty. We're the ones who are condemned. But yet we find the sinless man being condemned in this text. Notice that Jesus secretly is taken by the Jews in this first little sub-point here. Jesus is secretly taken by the Jews. Before we get to this point of our text where we look at him before Pilate, we read earlier in John's Gospel account and others that Jesus was taken captive by Jewish leadership who hated him. If you go backwards to chapter 18 and just look at the opening portion of this chapter, notice this. The Bible says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, and for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went with their lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it back and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath, so I, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. You know, as you look at this particular text, I find it interesting that you look at verse 1 to begin with, that Jesus and his disciples, they had had the Lord's Supper, they had instituted that, and we know that they sung a hymn, Jesus had taught them in the upper room, But then they leave and they go out across the brook Kidron to a place where there's a garden. Now, why is that significant to the bigger picture of this week? Well, the path that Jesus rode down the Mount of Olives comes down into the Kidron Valley, into the Kidron Valley, and back up into Jerusalem. So you have the Mount of Olives on one side, and then you have Jerusalem on the other side. In between is this valley. And a part of the Mount of Olives at the base there is the Garden of Gethsemane. And what's ironic here is that Jesus is going out to this very place where he's going to be betrayed, which a few days earlier is the same general area where the crowds were shouting, Hosanna. The crowds were shouting, Hosanna in the highest. And so the same general area is where he's going to be arrested, where he's going to have his agony begin his prayer. Jesus knew his hour had come, and he's there in agony as he prays to the Father. Now, Luke captures this agony most vividly for us. If you read Luke 22, 44, and I put it in your notes for you, but notice this description about Jesus. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Can you just picture this? Can you maybe imagine for a moment, I know we can't imagine by experience, but we can think about the agony that Jesus is enduring. Now, some try to view this like great drops of blood as a metaphor only, but there are actually uh, both ancient and modern accounts on record of people sweating blood. 
It's a condition called hematidrosis, if that's the right way to pronounce that. Hematidrosis. It's where extreme anguish or physical strain causes one's capillary blood vessels to dilate and burst, mixing sweat with blood. And I tend to think that this is physically going on in Jesus, that it really did look like blood that was coming from him as he prayed. We can only imagine the pain and agony that Jesus is going through emotionally, spiritually, and physically, and he's not even been arrested yet. He's not had one uh, one blow to his body by the whips, not one nail yet, not one crown of thorns yet. He's not even been betrayed yet, and yet he's in agony. Now, as Jesus is speaking with his disciples in the garden, the, the betrayer comes, Judas Iscariot, and his band of men with religious leaders. In verse 3, we see he had procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they went with their lanterns and torches and weapons. Now, you just kind of picture this scene. I want you to understand something, too, that these are Jewish leaders. I know it says soldiers, but these would not be Roman soldiers. There's nowhere that it says it's Roman soldiers. It wouldn't make sense to see Roman soldiers there involved because then Pilate would have already had knowledge and would have given authority to arrest him. But this is new to Pilate when they bring him to Pilate. What you'll find here is that this is Jewish authority coming to arrest Jesus. The Bible tells us in Luke 22, 52, Jesus said to them, the chief priests, and notice this, officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him. Have you come out against out, out as against a robber with swords and clubs? clubs? These soldiers were the soldiers that were Jewish. They were at guard at the temple. And so this is an entire Jewish band who is coming unto Jesus in the middle of the night. In the middle of the night. And why do you suppose they did this at night? Well, one reason is because they feared an uproar from the people. They didn't want to make a big spectacle in the middle of the day, especially during Passover week when there is multitudes more Jews in town than normal. It's a, it's a very big ordeal. But what you find as you study the trial of Jesus, this whole thing is a big sham. It's illegitimate, it's unlawful in the way that they conduct it. Now Jesus asked them, who do you seek? And Jesus, I think it's interesting that the very power of his voice when he said, I'm he, they fell down backwards. They just fall backwards. I mean, all of this fascinates me. Just, just to imagine being one of the disciples and seeing all of this happen, being Peter or John or, or, or James, any one of them. Now after Jesus rebukes Peter for being Peter, trying to cut Cut the guy, cutting a soldier's ear off. Verse 12, we read that they arrested Jesus and bound him. Let's ponder that for a moment. Could this crowd of Jewish men have actually taken Jesus by force? Did they possess such power to do such a thing? Not even close. You see, all of the Jewish leaders combined with Rome and every other power in the world could not have bound Jesus except he lets them bind him. The whole point of this gospel narrative is that this is Jesus willfully giving himself unto it. Every step of the way. Every step of the way. He let them arrest him. He let them bind him. He let them take him captive. And when Peter tried to fight for Jesus, how did he respond? He said, put your sword up. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now, Jesus spoke much about the cup. He prayed about the cup. This cup was the cup of 
of, of redemption. It would be the wrath of God. It would be the judgment on sin. It was his desire and his will to drink it. It was his responsibility to take the cup. And so Jesus lets him lets them take him and condemn him. But notice also letter B, not only is G- Jesus we find secretly arrested and taken by the Jews, we find that Jesus is shamefully tried in his trial before Pilate and also before the Jews. Now, Jesus was taken firstly to Jewish leaders in his trial. Annas and Caiaphas, we don't read about that. And while before them, how did that trial proceed? What was that trial like? His trial was forced and it was faulty. They wanted Jesus dead no matter what it cost. It doesn't matter if they had to lie to get it done. Now, if you look at Matthew's account for a moment, Matthew 26, we'll go back to Matthew for just a minute. If you look at verse 59 here, you look at how his trial proceeds. The Bible says, Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered, and Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat among the guards to see the end. But notice verse 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, at last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? As you read through this trial, what do you find? You find that they are forcing it. They're intentionally seeking false witnesses to come against Jesus, to find something, something that we can use to, to, to pin him uh, uh, unto the verdict of death, right? And what's the result in this endeavor? They found none, though many false witnesses came forward. So what they use is his, his claim to be the Christ, to be the Son of God. That's what they're using against him because there is no other legitimate reason to kill him. But how shameful this is, is... Jesus is under Jewish arrest in this trial, and they just begin spitting in his face, just randomly smiting and smacking him on the face, hitting him, mocking him. You know, in the next phase, they take Jesus to the Roman governor, Pilate, which brings us to our text, and they want Pilate to be the one to order the death of Jesus. And now we come back to John Remember that he previously said in 1831, it's not, the Jews said it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. We want you to do it, Pilate. Well, the reason for that is prior to Jesus' execution, the Romans reportedly had revoked the Sanhedrin's uh, right to impose capital punishment in such circumstances. Now, you'll find other instances where there may have been mobs that had killed people, like Stephen in Acts 7. But by and large, this particular instance shows us that that it was not lawful for them to do that. 
But not only was there a, a Roman restriction to put Jesus to death, it also looked bad on them as the religious leaders because most of the city had raved after Jesus, didn't they? Just not long ago. But here's what we find with Pilate's evaluation. I love this. In John 19, no, no, I want you to see this. What does, what, does, what does Pilate say about Jesus and his verdict about him? In verse 4, what, is Paul, what does Pilate conclude about him? He says, I find no guilt in him. They wanted to be killed, but Pilate sees nothing worthy of it. Again, in verse 6, Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. Earlier in chapter 18, verse, verse 38, he said it there too. I find no guilt in him. Three times Pilate, the Roman ruler, has said, I don't see any cause of death in Jesus. None whatsoever. But the Jews pressure him with a pressure point that he can't escape. And you see it in verse 12. Look at this. This is important to Pilate. If you release this man... You are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. They've got him in a vice grip here. Because Caesar is basically the Romans' God in a sense. He's their Lord. He's the one that they're allegiant to. And if, and if you let this other person go who's supposedly a king of the Jews, then that's in opposition to Caesar. So, so they put him in a pressure point to try to make him give in. When we were young boys in school, we used to try to wrestle each other. And, and one of the things you do when you wrestle, you try to find a pressure point to get them to give up, right? And usually, once you find the pressure point and you press hard enough, in order for them to let up, you say, mercy, mercy, I'm done, right? You win. This is what's happened. They put the pressure point on Pilate. They won. They have him cornered here with this decision. And so Pilate must give in at this point. So Pilate's response is to put Jesus before them as their king. It shows in verse 13 through 14 again. Look at it. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in the place called the Stone of Pavement in Aramaic Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And it is true that Jesus is the king, right? But they don't want him as the king. They don't see him as the king. But what's their response? What is their verdict from, what's the verdict from the people in verse 15? They say, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Crucify him, the king, their, their Christ, crucify him. Now you remember how just days ago they were shouting, not the Pharisees, but the other Jews, Hosanna, Hosanna. What you'll find in this narrative and other accounts is that it's not just the religious leaders. They've conjured the crowd to start chanting, crucify him, crucify him. The leaders of Israel have instigated other Jews to say that very thing. And Pilate asks, shall I crucify your king? And listen to their words because this is very important to understand. The narrative with Israel itself. They say, we have no king but who? Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. You know what they have done by that declaration? They have pledged their allegiance to Rome instead of their own covenant God, 
who gave them, put them in this land, called them out all the way back to Abraham, said, I'm going to make of you a people. They have, they have refuted. They have, they have tur- turned away from him. And so in despising Jesus, they have renounced their sacred covenant with God, repudiating the principle at the heart of Israel's life from the very beginning that God himself is the king over his people. They've placed God. They've, in, in God's place, they pledged allegiance to a vile Gentile ruler. Now, you remember the parable that Jesus told the leaders about God sending his servants. This is a picture about, Jesus, about the Jewish nation. He sent them his servants, and they killed him. He sent them his servants, and he killed them to the vineyard, right? But then he said, oh, well, I'll send my son, and they'll receive him. And what do they do? They take the son, and they kill him. And what's the reason? Luke 19, 14, in that parable, his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. They do not want Jesus as their king. So Pilate's left with no alternative. Verse 16, he gives the order, delivered him over to them to be crucified. So the Christ, the king, has been condemned as if he is a vile criminal, though he be the sinless, perfect Son of God. That leads us to number two. Notice with me the crucifixion of Christ. The crucifixion of Christ. Let me point out just two things very simply here. I know a lot of this is narrative. A lot of this is just bringing to our remembrance. But listen to it. Let it affect your heart. I want you to see that Jesus endured great suffering in his death. This is a very plain and simple. Verse 17 through 18, we read, They took Jesus and he went out bearing his cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. There they crucified him. This place of the skull is is called that because it's not only a place of death, but it's a place that actually resembles a skull. I've been to Israel a couple times, and when you visit Israel, you go to the guarded tomb area, which is the supposed tomb where Christ was laid, I think it to be the most legitimate place. It has a lot of ties to biblical description. And number one, it's empty. I think that's a pretty good indication. But when you walk just a little ways over from that garden tomb, you go over to this hill, which is called Golgotha. And there at this hill in the side of the rock, you can see what was the outline of a skull. Now, erosion over the many thousands of years has kind of deteriorated a little bit, but you can still faintly see the image of the skull there. Nevertheless, this is the place where they crucified him. But I want you to understand this too, that before Jesus was ever led to Golgotha's hill, his suffering had already been immense, far worse than we could ever imagine. Do you remember what we read that happened to Jesus in verse 1 before they led him to Golgotha? Pilate took Jesus and flogged him or scourged him. Now, I learned something today. I think it's important to note this. Amazing how you study your Bible, you continue to learn. I did not know this till today. That Jesus was not flogged once, but twice by the Romans. Twice. Now, in other accounts, we read that once the sentence of death is given by Pilate, Jesus is flogged at that time. But then other accounts, we read that Jesus is flogged at the beginning, before the sentence of death. Now, I think it seems more likely that this flogging was by the Romans, the one at the very beginning was a lighter form of flogging. 
not the same kind of flogging they give to someone that has been sentenced to death. It's a lighter form. In other words, Pilate, when he brings him to the Jews, he says, all right, I'm going to punish him, and then I'll release him. So let's give him a flogging, your typical Roman flogging, and then we'll release him. As if that would satisfy the Jews, right? But that didn't satisfy the Jews, Jews did it. If you read John 19.1 and Luke 23.16, they use two different verbs that refer to a lighter flogging. Whereas Matthew, uh, Matthew 27.26 and Mark 15.15, they use a different word, and it refers to a much more severe beating that Jesus would have received after Pilate pronounced the sentence of death. You read Matthew 27.26, and here's what we find. He released from them for them Barabbas, having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified, all in that moment. John doesn't record that second scourging, but this is what happened. He's got a scourging at the beginning that's lighter, and then you have a heavier scourging at the end before he goes to the cross. There were two levels of flogging by the Romans, one lighter and one heavier. And friend, in Roman flogging, especially in which they are condemned to death, Roman flogging was a person being beaten with leather whips. And those whips often had pieces of bone and rocks and sometimes glass intertwined into them. The entire design of that tool of torture is to rip the flesh from the body of the person being beaten. So Jesus has received one scourging. And now he receives a more severe scourging with this, in which his flesh is being torn from his body. And after that comes the actual crucifixion. This was a Roman method of execution in which a person was nailed to a cross. Both hands and the feet, nails, gigantic nails, driven through them to fasten them to it. To fasten him to it. Make sure he stays up there. You just imagine the nails being driven through the hands and feet of Jesus. And as Jesus hangs there, you understand he hung on the cross for six hours. Six hours. Six hours of agonizing pain during that entire duration. Because, you know, in crucifixion, how does a person die? They die of asphyxiation. They suffocate to death. Because they're hanging by their hands and they're unable to draw oxygen. And so you can imagine that every movement to try to lift up and grasp a breath sends endless pain in all of these open wounds as he's rubbing against the cross and he's trying to lift himself up just for a breath, just to breathe. Every moment is agonizing. Friend, there simply isn't enough words to describe the suffering of our Savior. And as I read about what, I, what we see in the Scriptures, here's what you, here's what, it's not just facts of history. Christian, He did this for you. Personal. He's agonizing for you. For you. That's what the cross is about. And we've taught our kids... Jubilee and David about the cross. What's the cross mean? Is this more than just, you know, a necklace we wear or, uh, you know, a sign on a, uh, on a poster? What's the cross mean? Well, it means that Jesus died for our sins, right? That's the simple explanation of what the cross actually means. 
But we really have no clue how deep that goes, do we? He suffered as no man ever suffered. In the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah 52 and verse 14, the Bible says of the suffering Christ, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. What's this saying of Jesus and his torture? He's so marred beyond human recognition. The most horrendous form of execution is what the Jewish leaders demanded for their king. They shouted, crucify him, crucify him. Now let's just think about that for a moment. What greater sin could there be than God's own chosen people nationally who he sent them, the one who promised to send them, and they say crucify him. Jesus endured great suffering in his death, but not only that, he endured great shame in his death. Before Jesus is led away, he's already endured great shame both on the Jews and Romans. But notice the theme of the mockery in Matthew 27. Now, understand Matthew's not necessarily a chronological account. It's very much the facts of it in its place. Luke is probably the most chronological that you'll find in the gospel accounts. But look at Matthew, just how the, how the soldiers treat him. We get a little bit of it in John's account, but Matthew 20, 26, verse 27 forward, says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put on his clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. What do you read there about this mockery, this shame? They're portraying him as this powerless, stricken king. Not a crown of gold that he gets, but a crown of thorns. And they put that crown on his head. And then they beat it into his head, causing even more thriving pain, kneeling before him, mocking him as a king. What shame is brought to Jesus? And it only increases as he's there on the cross, and we know that Pilate put a sign above the cross, and what did the sign say? Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, right? What kind of king is crucified? Where's his army? Where's his defense? What kind of king is this? The shame that is here. The shame that is upon Jesus. And to further enhance his shame, you notice in John's account, he was crucified where? Near the city. Near the city. Particularly by a road. Why is it this way? Well, the Romans liked to make a spectacle of those whom they put to death. They wanted everyone to know and see their power. Don't mess with Rome. Or this is what happens. Don't mess with Rome. And so many are passing by Jesus as he's hanging there in shame and in suffering. And what did some of them say as they passed by? Just these average people walking by, seeing Jesus on the cross. You read Mark's account, and it's there in your notes for you. Mark 15, 29 through 32. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. 
So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him. One another saying he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let Christ the King of Israel come down now from the cross that we may see and believe him. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. You see that on every side, the ones passing by, they're mocking him. The chief priests that are there, they're mocking him. The two thieves that are crucified with him, they're sitting there mocking him. Shame upon shame upon shame. And why is it that Jesus, the King of all kings, the Christ, why is it that he is being slain in this manner like a criminal? like a lamb to the slaughter. Why is he doing this when he has the power to destroy all his enemies and all those who mock him? For you. For you. Philippians 2.8. Paul writes of Jesus that he being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even the death of the cross. Christian, if you want an example of humility, look to the cross. There is no greater picture of humility than Jesus dying on the cross for us. So why did he do this? Let's bring us to number three. And lastly, we see the completion of Christ. What is Jesus completing here? Jesus finished the salvation for his people. He finishes, he completes, accomplishes salvation for his people. Now, you remember that Jesus, being truly the Christ and King, whatever he commands happens. If he did not want to go to the cross, he could have stopped it all. You remember what Jesus told Peter in Gethsemane? Matthew's account, I love this. There's a song that, integrates this somehow, I forget the name of it, but Matthew 26, 53, he says to Peter, do you not think, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? I think the song goes something like he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could have. He says, Peter, hold on, don't, you're not supposed to physically fight for me here. If I wanted to, I could call all the hosts of heaven that are mine and they could eradicate everything and I could go free. He could have done that. But instead of stopping it all and saving himself, he chose to suffer to save us. The sinners, the ones who actually deserve what he's going through. Look at all the pain and agony, all the suffering. I deserve that. We deserve that. We are the ones condemned in sin, not him. We're the ones who are guilty. And in verse 28 through 30, we see exactly what he did. What does he say before he dies? Three words. It is finished. One word in the Greek, tetelestai. It is finished. What exactly did Jesus finish? He, he, he did all that was necessary for our redemption, for our atonement, for the wrath of God to be appeased. Now understand this too. We, we must understand this when it comes to the cross because oftentimes the focus point is maybe imbalanced. 
As severe as the physical suffering and pain was for Jesus in his flogging, in his crowning of thorns, in his crucifixion, understand this. All of that pales in comparison to his pain and agony of bearing the judgment of sin upon himself for his people. Because there on the cross, Jesus is not just dying as any other man dies. He received the full measure and weight of God's holy wrath and justice on sin. Now, in innumerable multitudes. In innumerable multitudes. Now think of this, Christian. How many sins is each one individual of that innumerable multitude of people Accountable for. How many sins is every person accountable for? Here's the answer. An innumerable multitude. An innumerable multitude, friend. We cannot even fathom the depth of Christ's agony that day. Not physically, but spiritually. Spiritually, what He took for us. He was submerged in damnation and darkness. Bearing the sins of His people. The very presence of His eternal Father being veiled from Him. He had never experienced that before in all eternity. Matthew 27, verse 45 and 46 gives us insight to that. Now from the sixth hour... There was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. So you understand, Jesus is on the cross for six hours. Three of those hours, it's nothing but darkness. Bear in mind, this is the middle of the day. Nothing but darkness. And look at what it says. About the ninth hour, this is about where Jesus is going to give up the ghost. He's going to die. He cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That bears out for us what Jesus is experiencing right there. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting the Psalm of David and applying it to himself. Psalm 22 will give you greater insight into the crucifixion of Christ. And to think that even in his physical suffering, that every one of these last statements caused him so much pain just to gather the breath to speak, it is finished. There had never been, nor will there ever be again, such a dark and dreadful moment for God the Son. See, the demands of God's holy justice upon sin had to be met or else every single one of us perish in eternity in hell. And rightly so. Every single one of us deserved that we're worthy of God's eternal wrath but Christ on the cross satisfied the wrath of God for his people that's what propitiation means that he is satisfied he is appeased the wrath of God so that all who believe in him would be free forgiven and forever brought back to their God as Peter rightly said in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. 
being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Do you see this, Christian? What is happening here for you? Do you see how great your sin is? Sin is so often downplayed. But if you want to see the severity of sin, look to the cross. Because most do not realize how heinous all sin truly is. Christ lived sinlessly so that he could die as the sinner deserved to die. And that is the very reason that Jesus came into the world. It was to save his people from their sin. Lastly, I'll have you note that in the completion of Christ, not only did he fulfill salvation for his people, he fulfilled the scriptures of his prophecy. In an amazing way, Christ's rejection brought redemption. Now, with the rejection of Christ, it all looked like doom and gloom to the disciples, right? His followers, they fled, they didn't understand, they thought he was going to take over in a sense. Yet all of this was happening just as God planned it, even from the foundation of the world. Psalm 118, 22 through 23, notice this passage, I love this prophecy. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Who is the stone and who are the builders? Well, Jesus is the stone and the builders are the religious leaders who rejected him. Jesus claimed that in Matthew 21, 42. But Peter preached it to them not long after this. Acts 4, 11 through 12, listen to this. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Friend, if you're looking for salvation, or you think you have salvation in any other way than Jesus and his death, you don't have it. It's only in him. Whose doing is all of this? This rejection, this crucifixion, whose doing is all of this? The psalmist says, this is the Lord's doing. And what does he describe this as? It is marvelous in our eyes. It may not have seemed marvelous to the disciples in the moment. Friend, we have the big picture here, don't we? Look back at the cross. It is marvelous. Throughout his whole betrayal, Condemnation and crucifixion of Jesus. Scripture after scripture after scripture is fulfilled in exact, perfect detail in the one man, Christ Jesus. And when it was all finished, we find at the end, you'll notice that, what does it say Jesus did? He gave up his spirit. You know what that shows us? Jesus wasn't going to die until he allowed himself to die. He could not die until he allowed himself to die. He gave up his spirit. Nothing was left undone. Christ the King, though he humbled himself to die on that very dark day, what's coming not very long after that? Sunday is coming. Sunday is coming. Resurrection day is coming. And that resurrection morning, vindicates all the evil that was done to him. The rejected Christ is the redeeming Christ, crucified on behalf of sinners like you and I. 
Tonight, if you have never believed on him, that is God's command to you. You understand, it's not just an invitation, it's a command. Repent and believe the gospel. For those who do not repent and believe the gospel will suffer the weight of God's wrath. If you have believed on him, Christian, especially through this week of the year, I just encourage you to rejoice and praise him and thank him because you, you deserve the full weight of God's wrath. But Christ took it for you. Rejoice if you're saved today. Praise him, give him thanks. Be the light of that wonderful gospel message so that others may hear it and believe and be saved as well. Well, that'll conclude our time in Scripture tonight. And I pray that this reminder has been encouragement to us and just a reflection on the gospel. We know that Christ was crucified this week. And I know there's some debate over which, which day it was, but that's not really what matters. Whether you believe it's Wednesday, Friday, or Thursday, um, he died, he atoned, and he rose. And uh, so rejoice in that this week. I encourage you.